Well, hello everyone. It is that Williams guy back for an episode. Uh, we did miss last week, and let me start off by explaining why that is the case. But first, here to help out tonight, the magnificent Steve Havy. How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing great, Lee. Thanks for asking. Thank you. Thank you. You came up with a show I did and stepped in to help. So thank you for that. You're welcome. All right. Folks, uh, as you, if you're regular listeners of the show, uh, I did start back in a new grad school project at the beginning of this semester. Uh, this The classes are not a full semester in length. They're actually running in eight-week sessions or swings. We have to do everything we would do in the full length of a semester in only eight weeks instead of 16 weeks. And so for the most part, I've been able to stay ahead of the assignments. However, last week uh, I got caught with two assignments to do and I was teaching up at uh, Cahutta Pines on Saturday and there was just absolutely no time for me to take out to record an episode. I ended up submitting my second assignment that was due on Sunday night at about 8 o'clock Eastern Sunday night and uh, I was up against the wire on that. So no episode. And that may bite us a few more times in the future as we roll. And rolling along this week, I, I still didn't uh, have anything prepared. So I started soliciting show ideas this afternoon in the Williams Guy Show Group on Facebook. And Steve hit up with this suggestion. And so what we're going to do is had several people submit questions uh, to Steve. And Steve's going to ask them to me that right now and you may hear an angry beagle and a terrier in the background because they're mad about something steve all right well let's start let's dive right in uh from nate his question is in your experience have you noticed an increase in demand for shotgun training or is it one of those things that everyone says they want but then don't show up for is there an is there increased demand and if there is do you think that the phenomenon is regional or fairly universal. All right. Uh, Steve froze a little bit in the middle of that. We're having some technical issues. I don't know, I don't know if it's my internet connection or his, uh, but we are experiencing some freezing uh, every so often, Inter intermittently, as the weatherman would say. Uh, the question was about increasing demand for shotgun classes. Yes. Is it increasing or is it just uh, people say so? And is it regional or fairly universal? You know, shotgun's one of those things that tends to come in waves. Uh, there's not like a regular steady demand for it, at least in my experience. And then every so often I'll start getting solicitation, you know, emails, when's your next shotgun class, et cetera. And then I'll run a class and it may fill. It may do well. So then I schedule another one, kind of follow it up, and then that one doesn't. Uh, it's, it's kind of a hit or miss thing in my area with shotgun. As far as around the country, you know, I don't know. It seems like it's the same thing. Uh, it's kind of a, you got to hit it at just the right time uh, when you have enough people that are interested. And uh, handgun classes sell better than shotgun classes. To a certain extent, carbine classes sell better than, than shotgun classes as well. I just don't personally do as much carbine as I would do shotgun. Okay. Yeah, I, I know from my experience, I do a defensive shotgun class at a local gun range. And 
I'll get three or four that will sign up about every third time we offer the class. Um, you know, for the, for the enthusiasts out there, there's all the nationally known instructors that teach shotgun and you get a lot of dedicated training enthusiasts that uh, uh -huh. go to those. But I did see an uptick after the, um, uh, what should I call them? The mostly peaceful protests that occurred in Atlanta a couple of years ago. Uh, I had some yeah. people that I thought would never ask me about firearms at all call me and say, hey, I want to watch, I want to buy a shotgun. What should I get? But it's died off since then. All right. And I guess one thing we should discuss there as well is that it seems like the last thing that is coming back from the ammo drought is quality shotgun defensive ammo. I, I still can't find eight pellet flight control. Uh, I ordered some in February. Uh, rumor got out that federal was going to be dropping the eight pellet from the catalog. Uh, I called a law enforcement distributor and they were like, oh, no, 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 it's still in the, on the books. And they quoted me a six month lead time. So I ordered two cases, figuring that would last me for forever. The six months passed and I contacted them. Hey, any update on that lead time? Oh, it's going to be another six months. And so when when eight pellet is going to become available again, I don't know. Nine pellet is available on the market. You know, I'm wondering if um, there's not a lot of uh, the, the federal flight control on eight pellet is the only eight pellet load that I'm familiar with, but I'm no expert. I wonder if the decrease of shotgun in police departments, law enforcement, et cetera, has decreased the demand on that eight pellet to the point that they don't, which is not worth their while to set it up and run it. I just, I don't know. Um, There's probably something to that. Uh, the shotgun is falling out of favor. Uh, seems like it's that, that ever increasing curve uh, in the law enforcement market. Uh, Remington does offer an eight pellet buckshot. I'm not certain what the other manufacturers have out there because once flight control became a thing, I abandoned everything else. Um, the, some of the federal agencies that still have shotguns and in inventory all do nine pellet. And so I'm sure that's why it's more plentiful. I don't know what other agencies are buying more. Obviously the fact that nine pellets back, I would think will point to that it sells better than eight pellet. Uh, but I would also say that some of the people that we're making those decisions may not be as knowledgeable as a lot of the higher end hobbyists out there. Well, if anybody knows anybody at the federal and they need some kind of bulk buy to run some eight pellet, let us know. And we can probably put a, we can put a, probably put a group together to buy a truckload of that stuff if they would just run it. All right. Probably well, our next could. question. Yeah, no, I'm, yeah, I, well, between Will Hunter and I, we could uh, <laughs> probably get something. We we get some financing in place, that's for sure. That's right. Uh, from a gentleman west of the Mississippi, why is show me the case law a fallacy as it pertains to ideas like firearm modifications, speed shooting, etc., complicating one's defensive gun use? Or is it a fallacy? Well, quite frankly, I, I, for one thing, I think we in the, the community, so to speak, we do tend to go to the extremes of arguments. Um, 
but you also have to look at what is case law and what is a precedent. Something only becomes precedent if it is decided by an appellate court or higher. You know, what happens in, in a trial jury in a local civil trial or a local criminal trial does not become precedent. It, it must get into the appellate court or up into a Supreme Court before it actually becomes binding on anyone. Um, a lot of the cases we hear about get discussed. They may not ever go to a jury verdict. It may get settled out. It, uh or there may be a summary judgment or the like, and there may not actually be case law on the specific issue. And then some of the times, you know, things that came up in trial court, you know, there were tactics that were argued by the plaintiff's attorneys or by a prosecutor in a criminal case. Those get discussed and people start discussing them as if they are precedent or a case law, and they're, and they're really not. Um, I'm going to get bold here and i'm actually going to break with one of the the industry uh industry stalwarts on an issue um mr you presents a case uh out of texas and i think the name of the case was santa Benez versus the city of tomball uh, i may not be pronouncing uh, that that name correctly the facts of that case were a city police officer, and again, I believe it was Tomball, Texas, fired shots at a suspect in the case. The officer in question, in sworn statements, said that his pistol had not been modified. When the pistol was examined by the firearms examiners, it was found that it had a minus connector in it. That minus connector was not what we call OEM, original equipment manufacturer. It had been placed in the gun after it left the factory. So in fact, it had been modified. There was also another statement that was made by the officer involved as to when he fired the shots that tend to be refuted by video evidence in the case. And in an attempt to get the case dismissed, the city asked for a summary judgment. And the judge ruled that there's, you know, the officer in question had made one factual statement that had proven to be incorrect. And there was this other questionable statement as far as when he actually fired the shots. And as such, the judge did not feel summary judgment was was warranted that the case needed to go to a jury. At that point, the city settled the case. And that case by Mr. Ayub and others is presented as a reason why you don't have a minus connector in your Glock. Well, folks, there's no case law. There's no precedent that came out of that case. It never went to trial. There was never an appeal. All we have on record is the summary judgment and the fact that the officer said that his gun had not been modified, but yet it had. Had he answered, has your gun been modified? Well, yeah, I put a minus connector in it. That would not have been an instance of where he made a statement of fact that was proven to be correct. And therefore, we have a question of his veracity of the rest of his statement, the rest of his testimony. So that in and of itself, I don't think that case justifies say, not putting a minus connector in your lot. Now, we can argue 
all sorts of other fine points of that. Uh, I think when you start messing around with the fire control systems on your guns, uh, you're creating situations that could be used against you. Or, But those tend to come up in the fact that if there's a claim as to whether or not your gun fired when you didn't intend to fire and the like, which there have been cases. Um, I know one in Florida where uh, officer fired a shot, stated that he intended to fire the shot. The prosecutor argued, no, 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 this was a negligent discharge. And we're going to prosecute you on a negligent basis instead of, I don't understand that legal argument. You have a person who's saying they intended to use deadly force. Why would you then argue that they did not intend to use deadly force? Yeah, I, I don't get that. Uh, when you start making modifications to your defensive carry firearms, uh, just be prepared to articulate why you did what you did. Uh, reasoning behind it, understand that you are opening yourself up to now the manufacturer is out of the liability loop. Their lawyers are not going to be there to defend their product. Um, there was a thread in the Range Master Instructor Group this week on the guns that we see failing classes. And one of the things that came up were modified clocks. Not out of the box factory glocks, modify glocks. And what we see a lot in there is people start switching into aftermarket components. And I know of one negligent discharge in which a per well, not negligent, just accidental discharge. The guy dropped the gun and the gun fired uh, with one of the very popular aftermarket uh, triggers that they claim is drop safe and it wasn't. Um, and the guy was injured. You start fooling around with all that kind of stuff and getting away from the original design, you're starting to ask yourself for problems. But if we go all the way back to the, to the original question is case law. There's just not going to be a lot of case law that definitively says this stuff because, again, that has to get to an appellate court or higher. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting too. Even if if it had gone to trial, would that minus connector have been an issue? Uh, it could have been used. Out, the to... issue was that he made a statement that wasn't correct. Not that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, we one of us froze up and we and we got to walking on each other oh. again. Uh, the the where it would come into play would be the veracity of the officer's testimony. Yeah, you right. stated your gun's not modified, but yet your gun is modified. What Correct. else have you said that is not true? But it was the fact that it was incorrect about a statement, not specifically what that statement was about. Right. right. And cities, just like companies, all the time decide to settle something because it's cheaper than going through with it. They've decided we just want to get be done with this, and they write a check, and off you go. So, and, and now they're done. And it may not be the city that's making that decision. It could be the city or the local government or whatever's insurance company. You know, it's going to cost us X amount to send our legal team down there to fight this case. We can settle it for Y amount and there's no risk involved. Well, then we'll just settle. 
That's right. Funny you mentioned that. I'll digress for two minutes sure. or 90 seconds. And somebody wanted to be approved to uh, be a trainer at a range where I'm involved in the trainer process. We told them they needed a million dollar liability policy. They said, well, I've got a hundred thousand dollar liability policy. We said, that's not enough. They said, but a million dollars is going to cost me $400. And this one only cost me 150. I said, that's right. And all the insurance company had, company has to do is say, Hey, we're just going to write a check for a hundred thousand dollars and they're off the hook. And it didn't buy you what you thought it bought you. The whole idea behind the policy is to have a big enough policy. So the insurance company is going to want to spend money to defend your case rather than write the check. And it's got to be a big enough check for them to be interested. And now we'll return to our regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> but for those of you out there that might want to skimp on your liability insurance, there's a reason not to do it. So tying the gentleman west of the Mississippi with our friend Brian, it kind of tie together because the gentleman west of the Mississippi talked about speed shooting, which I will tie into split times when shooting as far as defensive gun use. And Brian asked the question about the difference in time, being able to go from one split speed when you're shooting to a split speed where you can recognize a change uh, the stop signal to stop shooting and how some competitive shooters say that they can shoot in splits of 0.12. And if they slow down to 0.19 or 0.21, they're essentially slowing down enough that where they can see the difference, they can react to a change uh, and use that as their stop signal to stop shooting. And he was wondering what your thoughts were on that. And I kind of think those two kind of, kind of, kind of tie together. How fast is too fast to shoot in a defensive shooting. All right. Well, first, we, we need to, there's several things we can talk about to preface uh, this. Uh, one, the average reaction time by humans to a known stimulus is 0.25 seconds. Reaction time plus movement, in other words, carrying out your reaction to the stimulus, reaction time plus movement is response time. And so those two terms get mixed up uh, quite frequently because people will say reaction time and what they really mean is response time. All right, so you have to factor in, they recognize the stimulus, they make their decision, they implement and carry out the decision. All of that takes time. We don't know what our average reaction time to an unknown stimulus is because there's no way, no way to measure it. Um, now again, 0.25 is an average you may see some people who are faster. You may see some people who are slower. I have personally witnessed Larry Mudgett uh, break shots based, you know, finger on the trigger, prep to the wall, just going to break the shot as soon as he heard the timer beep at 0.11 seconds. I witnessed it multiple times. I have done that same test in dozens of classes with scores of students. And I typically see a lot of two sevens, two eights, three threes. Okay. Again, the average is 0.25. So we've got to have people on both sides of that for it to average to that. Um, you also have to take into account that the physical and processing ability that it takes to be able to run at 0 0.12, 0 0.15, 1.6 splits 
is a very minuscule with precision, with you know, getting the shots where they need to be, et cetera. All right, those are very high-end athletes. Those are not the typical people out there carrying a gun. All right, we're starting to talk about master, grandmaster shooters. If I take the decision-making process out of the shots, say I'm going to draw and shoot two to the body, one to the head, or I'm going to draw and shoot a build drill, and I have decided I am going to draw the gun and shoot this X number of shots versus I'm going to draw the gun and I'm going to shoot based on the stimulus and information in front of me, that's two different speeds. Uh, when I have made the decision that I'm going to draw and shoot a build drill to so to speak, I can get down to around quarter per second splits. All right. I can't shoot that fast and make decisions for your shots. Uh, for me, and this is me, uh, about a 0 0.40, 0 0.41 is where my decision making is solidly on par with my shooting ability. Um, I've been able to do it faster at like 0.35, but that was when I was really dialed in. Uh, and everything, but typically on par at about point four is where I feel comfortable in making shot to shot decisions with the ability to stop. Uh, I've mentioned on a previous episode or two that I ran down and ran drills where I ran two to the body, one to the head as fast as I could go straight from the holster. And I ran two to the body, one to the head, where I made an individual decision-free shots. In other words, the shots are back, the shot the sights are back, the sights are confirmed, I'm going to press the trigger. And the average difference between the two of those was 0.29 across all three shots. So I don't think running as hard as I can go gives me any significant benefit for trading off giving up the decision-making ability. If you're a grandmaster and you can make those same decisions at 0.25, God bless you. But don't try to apply that across the population. You know, if you're a grandmaster, you're in what, the top 5% of the sport? Yeah, that's not, you can't apply what you can do as a grandmaster to a C&D class shooter. That, that's not an apples to apples comparison. And you shouldn't be making those, those leaps. Uh, LAPD, Metro guys, SWAT guys are the epitome of, you know, law enforcement professional gunfighters. And my understanding is that the LAPD SWAT guys train at a half second cadence because they are adamant they want the decision making ability as part of the, the shooting problem. And, you know, they also say it doesn't take much to get people to speed up if they need to. The problem is getting people to slow down. Um, again, it's great to have a certain level of technical skill. Technical skill is a wonderful thing. We should be trying to achieve the best technical skill that we can achieve. But we also have to factor in there are, you know, extreme consequences attached to the decision to deploy deadly force. And I just, everything that I have trained from the law enforcement, from the use of force side of the house, the application side 
of the house tells me that extremely fast split, split speeds are a detriment to that. Um, you know, I've, I've told a couple of USPSA grandmasters that want to start talking about application side stuff. It's like, if I start trying to tell you how to win matches, you need to promptly put me in my place. But until you can testify as an expert witness in use of force cases, you need to probably shut up about use of force stuff. All right, there's two different worlds. Two different worlds. It's just we got a guy involved in both of them. I think it's important that people realize that they are two different worlds. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking of a theory yesterday, or maybe it was today. Um, of course, I come up with a lot of theories, as you know. Um, put a balance beam four inches off the ground and I can fly across that sucker. Put it four feet off the ground, I'm going to slow down a little. Double it to eight, I'm going to slow down even more. Double it to 16 and I doubt you'll get me out on that sucker. And because there's consequences involved for a misstep, that doesn't mean you won't cross the balance beam or you might not be faced with that situation, but there's a difference in all of those. There are consequences. And, um, you know, and if you can, if you can recognize stuff that quick, that's great. That should make it effortless for you to do it at a speed that will not get you in trouble in a court of law. Um, wasn't there a lady that shot at an extremely uh, she was an L.A. police officer, I think it was, uh -huh. or, and she shot at it. She was a very skilled competitive shooter, extremely fast splits. But when she got in a defensive situation, her splits were twice as much, twice as long. Yeah, they were still pretty quick, but they were twice uh, as long, or maybe longer. Yeah, her name is Tony McBride. Uh, there's a lot of video out there of her burning down steel uh, on the internet. And she's she's smoking. She's down quarter of a second or so on her splits. In the video from her actual law enforcement use of force incident, uh, her splits were probably 0 0.5, 0 0.6. Uh, very deliberate, very controlled. Each shot was a decision. And it's funny how uh, in the lawsuit that was filed against that, they tried to make a case over the fact that she was a competitive shooter and that she just burned uh, the, the plaintiff in the lawsuit, the subject in the, the use of force incident. Uh, you know, they're claiming she just burned him down. I'm like, I want to be the expert witness in that case. Uh, could we roll the video, video footage of her on the steel range? Can we roll the footage of her use of force incident? Bang. Bang. More verbal commands. The guy starts to get up with the knife. Bang. Bang. Yeah, you know, she was very deliberate in what she was doing. So I think that part of it could be very easily dealt with. I don't know what the end status of her case is, or even if it's gone to an end status yet. I know that... The LAPD itself uh, ruled that her use of force was justified, but then the case went to the LAPD commission, which is like a citizen oversight body, and they ruled that her first four shots were justified, but the shots five and six were not. And the last time I looked up the case to see where it was, they read an impasse there, and you know the chief was having to stand off with the with the police commission over where it was going to go. 
if it has gone to an end result, I don't know what that is at this time of the recording, and I don't know the status of the civil case. Okay. And, uh, you, before we started recording, you started talking about the uh, the Sully effect. Why don't you tell the audience about that? Well, the Sully effect, uh, for those of you that saw the movie Sully, it's about Miracle on the Hudson. And uh, Sully was uh, was the captain on that flight, and he was played by Tom Hanks in the movie. So they're, they're in front of the NTSB, um, and they're investigating the incident, and the NTSB is making the argument that he could have landed at Teterboro Airport in New Jersey rather than put it in the plane down in the Hudson if he had done everything uh, either correctly or just right, depending on your viewpoint. And they show a simulator run where indeed uh, they make it safely to Teterboro. So they take a break and he comes back and he says, okay, can we get real now? He says, what do you mean get real? Well, uh, that assumes that we knew instantly what to do at the time that it happened. And we knew just exactly what steps to take. You guys are Monday morning quarterbacking the heck out of this. How many runs did it take you? How many practice runs did it take you to land safely at Teterboro? And it took them like 17 tries or a dozen tries. Don't, don't call and tell me I'm wrong about the number of times it took. Uh, but they did not land safely at Teterboro the first time they tried it in the simulator. They didn't get to practice. Sully didn't get to practice it over and over and over again. He had to react to something that had never happened before. And which brings me to the idea that in defensive shootings, they never happened the way you envisioned them. No matter what you envisioned, it's going to be something different. Uh, you can try to remove the novelty and remove a lot of it, but it's going to be different. So anyway, that's my new uh, term, the Sully effect, when people talk about, well, I can do this because I practice it 100 times in the range. That's fine. When I get you off the range and I get you on the street and it happens in real life, your reaction time is going to be different. Your whole Everything's going to be different and it's going to be different enough that it's going to make a difference so anyway that's my sully effect story for tonight yeah i haven't been personally involved in an incident where i actually fired shots yet i have been in a bunch where guns were out guns were pointed fingers went to triggers bad guy decided to give up type situations uh, they are not like the the almost gunfights you envision in your heads. Uh, man, it's different when there's people in the background, when there's stuff moving, and you're actually having to make the decision of if I do X, what are the consequences uh, going to be? Uh, being there in that moment, knowing that if you you know, apply just a little more pressure to the trigger or if you put your finger on the trigger to begin with, you know, any of that stuff and you actually pull it, press the trigger all the way to the rear and you break that shot, what everything else is going to follow on after that. Um, I can think of, you know, one incident in which I was involved in which I drew a mental line if you know if x happens i'm going to do y it's in other words if that guy does x i'm going to shoot him and, and i was making those mental calculations in my head and you know there's that doubt that comes into your mind what if i'm wrong what if i'm wrong now ultimately 
that ceased to be a gunfight and ended up being a hands-on fight. Thankfully, I won the hands-on fight. We got him into cuffs, and um, well, I got him into cuffs, and then backup arrived. And once backup got there, uh, I was or proven correct. The guy was trying to get to a knife. Was actually trying to get two multiple knives, and you know, I had my line in the sand, and he did not cross that line in the sand. Thankfully. Now, I know in my heart that if he had, he was trying to un unbuckle a military duffel bag, and I knew how they worked because my father had one. And he he was screaming back at me, and I knew that he was trying to get to a weapon in that bag. And I had made up my mind that if he gets that hook undone, that's it. I'm not going to wait for him to get that, whatever he's going for that bag, and get it out on me. And once I had him in the cuffs, we had him in the patrol car, we and I dumped that bag out. There's like three or four knives there. Okay, I was right. That's what mm -hmm. he was trying to do. Um, but I had to make those decisions in real time. Right. I didn't get a walkthrough. I didn't get a beep. That started with me getting out to help someone. And I ended up almost killing him. That's not how you think those things starting. So if you hadn't have gone hands-on with them, did you go on hand? Did you go hands-on to keep them from getting in the bag? Uh, or did no, something he, else happen? He was on the side of the roadway screaming at traffic. And I know another deputy had responded to a call similarly the day before. And it was a, a, unable to make contact with him. The guy disappeared into the woods or whatever. And I was actually driving on my way into the office and I saw the guy and saw him. And it was like, okay, that's the guy they were trying to, to find yesterday. Let me go on out and see what's going on. And so I just pulled over to the side of the road and got out. Hey, how, how, how you doing, sir? Can I help you? And he immediately took an aggressive posture. Um, uh, it was obvious by the words that he was using that uh, his world and my world were not the same world, even though we were standing, you know, face to face. Uh he started trying to, he, he first stood up and he threw, put his hands up like he was going to fight me. I'm like, no, no. And then he, he threw the duffel bag on the ground and he dropped to the ground and started trying to un, unbuckle the hook. And I drew down on him and started giving him verbal commands. And uh, he stood up and actually ran to the other side of my vehicle. And I had to holster up and he was trying to get into the passenger door of my vehicle and uh, I put a shoulder mm. blade right into the small of his back and knocked, drove him into the side of my truck and knocked all the wind out of him. And the fight was pretty much out of him out of that point. Okay. Did Dink Keller blow through your mind at all while this was going on? You know, not specifically. Uh, Dink Keller, there's some parallels there, things that I know after the fact. Um, mm -hmm. Some very, very similar parallels to that. Um, uh, to the point passerbys actually called 911 saying you need to get some help you got a deputy in trouble just from seeing the interaction in, in between right. the two of us and um, you know it's uh, you know, I came within a whisker of shooting this guy 
and it did not look like any force on force scenario I've been in, anything I'd ever envisioned. Right. Any of all that. It was kind of like I was, you know, it didn't happen quickly. It actually happened kind of slow. Actually, one of the thoughts that went through my mind was like, man, this is taking a long time. Uh, from numerous training classes that I've been to, you know, they always talk about the crazy thoughts that pop into your head as these things are going along. And I'm like, wow, this is going much, much more slowly than I envisioned uh, a deadly force mm. incident to be. Okay. And now I did contemplate uh, holstering and going and tackling him off the top of that duffel bag. But then I knew now we're going to be in a ground fight and we're on the side of the road. And I thought my best bet was to stay in the with the partial cover that my vehicle door was giving me uh, with my pistol already out, already having made the decision. And okay. yeah, thankfully it worked. Thankfully it worked out well for the for the hunting. Yeah, and for him. Yeah. Because it could have been much different. All right. Well, yep. We'll uh, get on a lighter note here, maybe lighter, from Jason in Michigan. What was your most memorable class you ever took, both your best and the worst? You don't have to give names of the instructors, but maybe just something from the class that made it the most memorable. Okay, memorable. We'll start with worst because that one's easy. And I can't give the name of the instructor because I don't remember what his name was. Uh, this was a law enforcement class in which... That's your story and you're sticking to it? Uh, no, really, I don't remember what, what his name was. I know who he worked for, but I can't remember his actual name. Um, we were to the point in the class where we were practicing uh, what you call a felony stop or a high-risk stop. And I was working with a deputy from another agency, and... I was the primary on the stop and I was giving the verbal commands and I had individuals step from the vehicle, you know, do the whole, you know, back up towards the sound of my voice, the whole thing going on that you, that you, that you see in all the videos and, um, I was giving them the commands and had them, you know, turned in the circle and, and I saw a firearm in the waistband of this person playing the part of the, the suspect. And so I had them, you know, go down to a kneeling position, had their hands positioned where I wanted them to be. And I communicated with my cover deputy. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go up and I'm going to be contact. You're going to be cover. And we're going to go up and I'm going to cuff the, take, you know, secure the firearm and cuff them. And so we go to execute that plan and the instructor uh, stops us. What are you doing? What are you doing? I'm like, we have a plan we're trying to execute here. Oh, no, 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 no. This is how you handle this. And so he goes back like he's given the commands and he shouts out for the suspect to reach back and take the pistol out of their belt and toss it. <laughs> what? Man, oh, yeah, that's how you would do that. I'm like, no, it's not. Oh, yeah, it is. And so we're in front of this whole class, you know, having this debate. And I said, look here. I know what my skills are. 
And I know walking up on this guy, if he makes a move for that gun, I've got him. All right, th this is not a fair fight at this point. There's no way in the world he's going to smaller the back, get the gun, get around on me before I can put three in him and, and stop this thing. I said, but what you're wanting me to do is to order the guy to reach back and touch the firearm. So you're actually telling me to put, tell him to put his hands on the gun. That cuts my ability to respond if he does, makes a move, you know. I'm telling him to touch the gun and to put his hands on it and to take it out of his waistband. You're cutting down all of my ability to respond to this if it goes bad. I said, the other thing is now I've got some guy, you know, deputy number three that pulls up who has not heard the verbal commands because here's the thing. Somebody always leaves their siren on, you know, in these type situations, or he's just coming up and he has not been there the whole time or she, and then I'm telling the guy to reach back and grab the gun and they come up alongside of, a patrol car cover and all they see is the guy reaching for the gun and they burn them down and we play and when they play the dash cam video in court i'm telling the guy to grab the gun he's following my mm -hmm. commands and then you know deputy c over here burns him down now deputy c would be completely justified in that sense and the fact that he didn't know what was going on she did he's we're in the middle of a stop. He sees an armed suspect, sees a suspect grabbing a gun, pulling it out of the waistband, and reacts. Um, we we had a, had a pretty serious uh, discussion on that one, and that's my most memorable from from uh, the bad side. Um, most memorable from memorable from the good side. Oh man, there are so many. Um, thankful I've had more positive training ex experiences than negative. Um, the Larry Mudgett class stands out in my mind from one, not only getting to train with Larry, but the whole group of people that went there, uh, that were part of that class, mm -hmm. Wayne Dobbs, uh, John Holshan, some Hearn guy we had to carry the whole time. Uh, <laughs> you know, bulky, uh, oh gosh, I'm trying to. If I wasn't trying to name everybody that was there, Cagle, uh, Will yeah, Hunter. I was, was going to say, if you if you had Daryl there, then yeah, his adopted prodigy had to be there. Yeah. Oh gosh, you know there was like eight of us that went to that, and then there were some local people uh, from there. That was just from top to bottom because it was a complete immersion. You know, we'd get up, we'd have breakfast together before we go to class. We'd spend class all day with each other. We come back, we go to dinner with each other, then we gather around the fire pit at the hotel and discuss everything else again until time to go to bed. We solved all the world's problems, uh, everything. So probably from a complete social, educational, everything uh, standpoint, that's 1A. Uh, 1B would have to be the time that Tom Givens Hearn and I took a class from Dave Spalding as students and kind of had the same thing, you know, get up, breakfast, go to, go to class, go to dinner afterwards, hang out in Tom's hotel room until he ran us out afterward, you know, just the whole camaraderie of the training experience as well as the material that was being presented. Those are probably my two favorite classes that I've attended. Okay. 
I don't know what it is with you and Cecil getting on my buddy John so much, but <laughs> it's a shame. Wow. Is it time for a word from our ammo sponsor? Not sure if you want to do the ad or he'd go right ahead. Well, folks, you in a surprise move, the marketing department is hard at work, and we found an ammunition sponsor for that Weems Guy show. And I'm proud to pre present the first commercial from our new ammunition sponsor. So here we go. Are you thinking of taking a shotgun class? Are you the type of student that likes to pinch a penny while ignoring sound advice? You are? Then you're in luck because we have the perfect buckshot for you. CCS, otherwise known as Cecil's Cheap Stuff. Constructed of plain lead pellets that are sort of round and randomly tossed in there with no buffer material, with CCS, you not only save money, you also enjoy knowing that each shot will produce its own unique pattern. And your victims won't be able to avoid being hit by Cecil's cheap stuff because nobody knows where some of these pellets might wind up. But wait, there's more. With its special blend of horsehair wadding, you can be sure that each time you fire off a round of Cecil's cheap stuff, your shot is going to smell just as bad as it looks. So if you want to be the scourge of your next shotgun class, Run on out and grab a case of Cecil's Cheap Stuff. And don't forget to tell them that Cecil sent you. That's our first commercial, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. And Cecil, <laughs> lay off of my buddy, John Hearn. Thank you. And if well, you don't, don't know the story, ask Cecil. He'll tell you. I don't know that I can endorse laying off a of Hearn, but the fact that we get to mess with Hearn and mess with Cecil just makes it a bonus episode right there. There you go. Yeah. All right. Well, let's see. What else do we have on our list of questions here? Uh, we've got a Marine in Tennessee that wants to ask how to set benchmarks for yourself between I am good at this and I am good enough at this. And uh, they said, I've spent a bunch of time, money, and effort trying to be good at something when maybe I should have just been satisfied with good enough and moved on to develop another skill. The problem they have is, particularly when I'm learning something new, there's this drive to be perfect before moving on to something else, something that might actually complement all the rest of your skills if you just give yourself permission to move on. So I think they're looking for a standard or something they can use. How do they decide when it's time to move on? Do you have any suggestions when it comes to defensive gun use, the skills with defensive gun? something that they can use to decide when there's when they are good enough all right uh, all herning aside uh, john hearn uh, presented at TACCON this past year along with gil house and myself uh, we did a presentation on called our favorite studies and john presented on one that had been done involving uh, some very high-end naval personnel in which there were tests of technical skill in the scenario-based uh, test. And they made linkages between technical skill and performance on the, uh, the application side, the scenario side. What John said, the data from that study showed was about USPSA B-class 
is your point of diminishing return. Yeah, so basically what you have achieved all the technical skill that it would take to be, say, a B-class shooter, if you're chasing technical skill beyond that, you're actually nothing wrong with it, but there's really no gains on the application side. Um, I don't know what all the breakdowns are that would be um, to make everything as far as like technical, like the speed of a draw, all that kind of stuff. I think if you're somewhere down around a second and a half, non-stimulus presentation to a three by five, a four by six, somewhere around in there at seven yards or so, um, I think you're probably in the market. You know, you can't go much more than that. You start getting eight inch circle would be the absolute maximum. Uh, for as far as any kind mm -hmm. of effective hit, I see some people they'll got they'll they'll get everything staged just perfectly with the shirt that they know is going to work just right, hung just right, hems in the right spot, hands positioned, and then they'll do a shot to an FBI queue anywhere on the queue, and they'll claim they've got a sub second draw. Now, um, if you can get it good enough, like a four by six, eight and a half by eleven, you know somewhere around. That, and that's starting to push the size limits. Second and a half, I think you're probably good on the speed. Um, better is, you know, faster is better. But uh, if you're consistently around second and a half, you know, second and a quarter, if it would be even better. Um, it's probably time to start moving on to other things. Uh, if you are shooting at a good IDPA, you know, high sharpshooter, low expert level, USPSAB, you're probably there as far as technical skill goes based on everything that I've seen. The big thing is, you know, the shooting problems that we see are not that difficult. It really, you just got to be good. You don't have to be great. Um, it's the decision making it's everything else that goes in into place with it um, I think you're much better off you know, getting that good solid baseline and then working on tactics uh, doing some force on force stuff to start trying to inoculate your brain to, to the stresses that are going to be involved uh, getting into classes that teach you how to escape You know, how to avoid the non-lethal tools. Uh, I'm not a big mm -hmm. proponent of pepper spray myself based on my own personal experiences and probably crappy pepper spray, uh, but I recognize its utility. Uh, and, you know, if there's one thing that I wish I could be better, I wish I was better at the hand-to-hand. -hand. You know, I probably would have mm -hmm. been better off if I had spent more time in that kind of class than all the shooting classes I've gone to. Um, you know, we all want you know we want to be that grandmaster. We want to be the master level guy in, in IDPA. You want to do all this other stuff, and I get it. I get it. Um, but I'm much more concerned from an application standpoint that you can make solid decisions and that you can get the gun out in a reasonable amount of time, and that you can make the shots that you have to make. 
and none of this, well, it's outside of the A zone, so it's only a second down. No, it's got to be an A zone hit every time. Mm-hmm. Got to be a down zero hit or tighter, actually. Um, you know, the rule four, you got to know your target and what's beyond it. That only matters if you were justified to be shooting the target. And here's where I really think that rule means. You must have the ability to put the shots where you intend for them to go, or that rule is completely useless. If you Mm -hmm. can't put the shots where you intend for them to go, none of it else matters. Yep. And with that, you got to have a thorough understanding of the legal environment, the justification that that is necessary and it's it's a must paradigm it's not a may paradigm it's you got to be forced into the situation it's not the situation you want to you want to engage in Mm -hmm. don't invite that don't invite that into your life unless you know don't invite it in at all you got to get drug kicking and screaming to it right yeah, it's um, you know, the whole sub-second draw or one-second draw thing has been discussed a lot lately, and I have a uh, another theory, and that is that the one-second draw does not exist outside the range. It doesn't. And uh, it it well, and it bothers me. I don't want people to think that they could pull off a one-second draw in a defensive situation. And someone saying that if he had a one-second draw, he would have survived that situation, I think is a very, um, it it can be very misleading. And I went back and I looked at, uh, as you know, I run defensive pistol matches. Uh I went back and with the AMG shot timer in practice score, you have to go and dig it all out manually. You have to go to each stage and look at each Mm -hmm. shooter and then pull up their individual shot times but you can see what their draw to first shot is. And I have yet to find in looking through about 30 matches and focusing on the top shooters in each of those matches, anything approaching a one second draw. It's usually one five to one eight is the best I see. And that includes people that we, uh, you know, our buddy Doug, right? haven't found where he he's had anything below a 1.5 second draw to first shot. And he's from concealment in a match. The target's right in front of him. He knows where it is. He knows what the go signal is. And, and he's, he's an extremely, extremely accomplished shooter. And I have some other shooters that are very accomplished, much more accomplished than I am. The closest I came Thursday night, I specifically set up a stage with two strings. One was draw and fire three shots at a body. And one was draw and fire two, reload, fire two. And the closest anybody got was 1.21 seconds. And that was from an open rig USPSA race gun, race holster type situation. And I think it'd be interesting to see people that are trying to draw and shoot as fast as they can. And like you said, there's nothing wrong with this at all. I'm not knocking it in any way. Draw and fire two shots. I don't know what the reason is why I haven't seen anything below 1.5, but 
I think it has something to do with the fact that there's consequences if you don't hit. You want to have you want to win the match. Uh, you you want to be accurate. There's consequences if you're not accurate, and you have to fire two shots. And being able to follow up with that second shot requires, you know, the ability to follow up with that second shot. There may be other, I'm sure there's other people out there that capture shot times and matches. I'd be curious, you know, to see if any of them have seen something different. And, you know, because information is good to have. Anyway, that's my thoughts on that. Yeah. The people that pull off the one second or sub one second draw, you know, that are doing it legitimately, legitimately on the range. Yeah. More power to them. More power to them. I have done a 0.89 draw in a class from a retention holster. I got to tell you, I fired the whole mm -hmm. thing off of index. Yeah. I was shooting to an eight inch circle on ILFEQ. I knew that if I extended my arm straight out, and broke the shot as the gun was extending straight out that by index, I would put the shot in the eight inch circle. And I did 0.89. Mm -hmm. That I don't think I could do that to a three by five or a four by six to that same level. Um, seeing the sights being confirmed on the sights. And to me, I, I want to have, that extra thing of being confirmed when I'm making the shot. If I give up, you know, a tenth of a second, two tenths of a second, something along those lines, then, you know, to make certain that I'm putting the shot where I want it to be. Dave Spalding said something to me that was just brilliant one time in its simpleness. How do you know where your gun are, gun is until it's stopped? You know, because mm -hmm. he saw me break a shot as the gun was stopping, not stopped. He's like, how do you know where your gun really is until it's stopped? And I couldn't answer the question with anything other than, I really can't. Okay, so another tenth of a second for the gun to stop and me to see the sights and see know where the gun is before I press the to me from the legal environment, from everything that I've experienced over the last coming up on 25 years, uh, I'll sacrifice those tenths, two tenths, three tenths of a second for the being more sure, just because the consequences are so dire compared to when I'm shooting paper cardboard steel on the range. True. But I also think uh, context is important. Mm -hmm. I don't know what, distance you were when that shot was going on or you know if this if, if you're pre if you're pressing out and you're this far from the end and the shot breaks before you get to there oh. and we talk about acceptable sight picture acceptable sight movie acceptable sight movement if did you have it we we teach shooting from retention shooting from the index position oh. uh, you know you may not have known where your gun was precisely, but did you know where your gun was enough? D Dave's point's valid. I'm just yeah. saying that obviously I'm not going to sit here and, and espouse that Dave Spalding had a point that wasn't valid, even if I thought yeah. that, which I don't. But 
context is always important. Yeah. Um, so I was trying, I was thinking I was about, trying to hit a very sorry, small target at about seven yards. And I was trying to beat the timer to be impressive. And while the mm-hmm. miss was just outside of a three by five, you know, if I'd been shooting on an eight-inch circle and done it in the time that it, oh, wow, look at that. Okay, but I didn't hit the three by five I was aiming at. So was that because you rushed the shot or because you overprepped the trigger? Uh, I rushed the shot. It was not an overprepping the trigger. It was, I was pressing out and um, thought I saw the sight where, okay. where I wanted to Because we've seen that trigger. before too. Yeah, yeah. But the gun was still moving and the sights moved as, yeah. along with them as yeah. they are wont to do. Yeah. Well, I was uh, the Marine in, Miss- in Tennessee, the Marine in Mississippi. Uh, that's a ZZ Top song, isn't it? My head's in Mississippi. Um, but the Marine in Tennessee, I was thinking about their question about what's good enough. And I was thinking of a test. And I came back to the handgun score, the Range Master handgun uh, core skills test, which I like mm-hmm. because um, it isn't a part-time. It is Comstock. So it's the type of thing you can shoot now and see where you are and shoot later and see if you're getting better. And there really is, you can always get better with it, but you can decide when you've reached that kind of point of uh, diminishing returns. So, uh, you know, if you take that test, the handgun core skills test, and say you shoot a hundred on it, But every shot's in the eight-inch circle of the head box as as required. Uh, you're pretty competent. Yeah, 125 is where the breakdown is, I think, for, for a master score on that. Uh, but got, you can well, actually... Sh- is, I'm sorry. In, uh, in my latest copy of the Advanced Instructor Manual, it's 130-plus he has his master. But I think you're right. Back when I took it, I thought it was 125 for master. Maybe it wasn't there, but you can shoot a master score and drop points. I've seen me do it. Mm-hmm. Somebody you I, know? Yeah, it looks just like me. Has done it numerous occasions. But say you shoot a clean in the eight inch circle in the head with a you know with a score of a hundred hundred and ten on that. Here, you're pretty competent with the gun. I think you can probably handle any problem that's going to be thrown at you at that point. Yeah, his current range is 80 to 100 is very good. 100 to 130 is advanced. 130. Yeah. Plus his master. But the, yeah. but the key is, you know, because, you know, I, I do mostly gateway instruction and mm-hmm. we tend to forget just how small a group we typically interface with. Yeah. Yeah, we're starting to freeze up again. Well, starting to freeze up, but you've been freezing on me. I haven't frozen myself one time (laughs) while I've been sitting here. Now, find a test that you like and one that is Comstock scored so that you can measure your improvement. 
Um, because, you know, if it's got a part-time, then once you get to the part-time, there is no way to measure uh, if you're getting quicker or better or not. And like Lee said, focus on shooting it clean. But don't get so focused. I mean, I know people that if they aren't in the center of the eight-inch circle, then they're upset with themselves. If it didn't hit the zero in the middle of the zero area, they're upset with themselves. And you can have a... Uh, it is possible to be over-focused on accuracy to the point that it causes you to delay that shot. You know, another test that comes to mind really quickly is the Bakersfield qual when a shot on the actual Bakersfield target. And if you can shoot that clean with a score of 90 or above, mm -hmm. oh, you're, you're plenty competent. You're plenty competent. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I've shot a bunch of 99s on it and everything. And it's even if I get down, you know, for some reason around 90 or something like that, I still felt like I ran, ran pretty good with it, you know, because I went for a string there where I was shooting it with uh, uh, my 48 with iron sights on it from different mm -hmm. rigs, just trying to get some, some comparison data to, you know, my full size guns and guns with dots on it. And I got to tell you, I was pretty, pretty pleased mm -hmm. when I was trying to turn it in, you know, 93s or so clean uh, with that 48 and irons. Uh, I, I felt like I was competent enough to carry that gun. Yep. Well, we had um, in the cognitive conclave, funny you should bring up the Bakersfield qual. I just pulled up the score sheet. We had 25 shooters. And out of those 25 shooters, uh, the part time is 1.5 seconds to draw and fire two shots. And we had two out of 25 shooters that beat that part time. Everybody else was over. Uh -huh. And now these are, there are some very accomplished shooters in there. And then there were some not so very accomplished shooters in there. But I would say overall, it's still a, so much better than the average citizen out there. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, I'm, try I'm trying to think of who was in there and who beat the 1.5s. If, if one of them is who I'm thinking of uh, was a very high-end special forces guy or special operations guy. I'm not sure. I can't remember which one he was. And I, you, just, you just froze up on me, but, um, well, there was a, uh, there was a guy named Guy, and there was uh, and a guy named Ken. Okay. So, right. wasn't who I was thinking of then. No, it wasn't him. Yeah. No, he was he was over. He was one point six seven. Yeah, that that one point five for for that. Yeah, that that's that's a burger bear. Yeah, for two. shots i mean that's that you know have to be in from concealment or duty gear to a six inch circle not an eight inch circle right uh that that's uh that that's pretty well smoking that's right but they have to be able to what do they have to get they have to get an 80 or a 90 to i think on, 80 was they, the pass on demand score. They have i think 80 was the passing score on that yeah. Right. 
And so we had one. Out of the 25, we had 14 that could have gone on patrol that day. Yeah. And 11 that would have been told, eh, you're answering calls. And so. that, that class was an above average class too. Yes, but when you look at the list, I mean, I could have predicted the ones that probably wouldn't have made it. Yeah. So yeah. All, all the all the usual suspects would have gone on patrol. Yeah. Oh. With the exception of one who had a gun problem, but that goes back to the changing stuff with your guns. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, I'm out of questions. <laughs> unless you have one for me. No, I guess uh, we're starting to freeze up a little more frequently, so I think we'll just go ahead and call it a night uh, for that. Uh, but Steve, thank you for uh, uh, for coming up with the show idea and then coming on to, an to ask the questions tonight. You're most welcome. And just and thank you for just being genuinely magnificent. You you earned your moniker. You know. Wait a minute. Let's get my wife in here so she can laugh out loud at that comment. I, uh, folks, for the record, I have never referred to myself as the Magnificent Steve. I don't know why Lee calls me the Magnificent Steve, and he's not going to explain it to you now. And uh, it's just good to be great on the curve, I guess. So, but, but you are I welcome. Mean, you know, when I call you the Magnificent Steve, nobody ever says no, 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 no. They just pick it up, and start calling you that as well. Not to your face, but behind my back, I'm sure they've done it once or twice, and I wouldn't blame them. <laughs> no, it is, it is a superlative that is that is uh, definitely earned. And so thank you for everything you've done for me personally and uh, for the business and for everyone out there in the community. And, um, you know, it, it, it was touch and go there for a while as to who was the nicest guy in the shooting community. Was it you or Tim Reedy? And you know, I, I, you, you've beaten Tim. There's, even Tim but finally he, conceded that. He has the best looking legs. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, uh, I guess we're going to wrap up this episode, and uh, I hope we can stay on a regular production schedule, although one a week may be ambitious here for the for the next little while. Uh, I've got several uh, several assignments that I've got to get completed between now and the 13th to finish the first uh, class, and then the second class starts on the 15th, and you know, it runs for another eight weeks, and yeah, we'll see. Uh, I'll try to get stuff done. I would really love to get ahead and get several recorded and have them in the can for um, weeks, and I just can't. But when it's hard enough to get one recorded regularly, it's really hard to get ahead. And usually when I've done that, that is what has triggered all sorts of catastrophe in my life. But, uh, you know, there you go. Thank you for your time. And we know that your number one asset is your time. Thank you for choosing to spend it with us. <laughs>